Hello and welcome to the IOTA Unum podcasts from the Latin Mass Society. In the company of some great friends of tradition from around the world, we will be drilling into some of the fundamental issues affecting us today in the church and the world. Hello, it's Joseph Shaw again with the IOTA Unum podcast series for the Latin Mass Society. This week I'm joined by Dr. Jules Gomez, a writer for Church Militant and well known before that as a blogger and as an Anglican clergyman. Jules is now in full communion with the Holy Catholic Church um, and this is one of the things we want to talk about today. Welcome Jules. Thank you Joseph, it's a, a delight to be with you and thank you for inviting me to talk with you on this programme. It's a great, it's a great um, pleasure. Um, Jules is speaking to me from Rome from the Eternal City, um, and um, where he's where he's working as a journalist, um, and I had the honour of meeting him um, and even eating with him in the difficult moment in the Italian lockdown when it was impossible to eat <laughs> in restaurants. <laughs> Jules took pity on me, uh, a poor little waif and stray wandering the streets of Rome. Um, <laughs> so rather than having takeaway pizza in my hotel lobby. <laughs> I had a very pleasant, pleasant evening with Jules. So, um, Jules, um, tell us about um, when did you when did you come into the church? I came in immediately after Christmas on the 29th of December 2019. And uh, so I've been with the One Holy Catholic Church now for a little over a year, I think. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. It's always a joy to hear about people coming home um, to the church and never more so than in these days when it's it's sadly less common than it than it was. One of the one of the melancholy things about looking at historic statistics of the Catholic Church is the enormous number of um, conversions, um, as they were then called, um, recorded in the official statistics in England and Wales. Um, and curiously enough, it, at about the same time, they renamed conversions as receptions. Um, the number fell off a cliff. It's a, I think it's a rather an interesting, interesting parallel there. It's the very moment when they, losing that, that self-confidence um, about that people coming into the church were converting, and they wanted to kind of describe it in a somewhat euphemistic way, um, is that, that that reflects um, a, a moment in which actually people didn't want to come in. <laughs> that, that's, uh, th that does horrify me, if I may uh, interject here, because um, it does send out a subliminal message that, uh, you know, all churches are equally valid and you don't really need to convert to the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, but if you want to come in, that's fine. You know, we're on the same level and we'll receive you. And this does uh, resonate with my own experience because uh, when I did express an intention to come home to Rome, uh, a number of my Catholic priest friends and nuns said, oh my goodness, why, why do you need to come home? Uh, you know, why do you need to come to Rome? Um, we, we uh, you know, you're doing a great job 
as an Anglican priest and the Anglican Church needs people like you. Uh, so, you know, don't bother converting. Uh, uh, people also said, priests also told me, they said, uh, you know, <laughs> if, if you're converting because you think that uh, we have all the truth, uh, stay away because we have enough bigots of our own. We don't want to import them from the Church of England. And they were referring to my uh, biblical and theological conservative positions on homosexuality and the ordination of women. Uh, but perhaps I've been, I've thrown a grenade too early in our conversation. <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm scandalized on your behalf, Jules, but I don't think that our readers, listeners, will be all that surprised. We, we've heard this story many, many times, and I almost feel it's like, it's like becoming a Catholic, it's a bit like trying to join a, a Benedictine monastery where, where the, the, the um, receptionist is, is instructed to not open the door too, too quickly and to make sure that the people outside really, really want to come in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, in fact, so, I mean, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's scandalous. I, I, indeed, I mean, I think and the worst stories along these lines I've heard I relate to people who wanted to become Catholic, who were uh, members of the schismatic Eastern churches. So mm. if you are a Greek Orthodox and you, you come to the realisation that the, the Pope is, is, is the true um, successor of St. Peter and the, the, the visible head of the church, on earth um and you just just go to the you know your local catholic bishop or the nuncio or something then you can almost guarantee a a, a, a basically hostile reception gosh um and, and uh, for, 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 for clergy of the orthodox churches i mean it, it, it can be very hostile yeah. um and this we don't want to know about this this is actually an embarrassment to the church yeah that someone should want to come over um, yeah. Which is which is which is horrifying. It's, it's actually horrifying. I mean, I, I of course one hears these stories and 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 you know no names, no pactual usually. Um, so I don't know. I leave that to listeners to determine uh, whether they want to believe that or not. But it's it's uh, your your experience is 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 very sad. <clears throat> um, I, before we started recording, I was mentioned to to Jules that my, my to my both of my parents are kind of converts um, and indeed. At that time, that time when, when the church was, was really welcoming to converts, not just them, but one of my mother's brothers, um, one of my father's um, siblings, um, and um, my mother's father, you know, the whole gang, you know, not everyone. Um, and that was at a time when there was a lot of hostility to conversions, not among Catholics, but among the places they were coming from. Exactly. Yes. You know, and it's, it's people really lost friends. They were cut out of wills. They, weren't, they couldn't marry people they wanted to marry. They couldn't get jobs they would otherwise be able to get. It was a real, real thing. Um, and they were joining a beleaguered, in many ways, beleaguered um, church. Um, and... And it, it's 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 funny how things you know some things change and some things stay the same, but it's it's um, that the sacrifice that those people made in those you know in those past years and not so much in the fifties when my parents came, but certainly you know before then um, and even besides that my 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 grandfather he lost his pension 
Mm. And that was, of course, one of the big things that the debate over the women priest business and the church thing yeah. were yeah. Anglican convert clergy going yeah. to take their pensions with them or not. Um, but um, um, to, to avoid rambling on, um, tell us about your own um, journey, Jules, because I'm sure that would be um, of, of interest. Well, it began with pastoral ministry because as I visited people, I served for seven years on the Isle of Man before I converted, and that's where I really moved. I, I would visit people, and uh, most of them evangelical Christians, and I discovered to my horror that many of them had stopped going to church altogether, and they saw the church as an add-on rather than something absolutely central to Christianity. And I would repeatedly quote John Stott, the great Anglican theologian and preacher, in my sermons. And John Stott ha has this wonderful line where he talks about uh, the fact that uh, he, you can't be part of the head, Jesus, without being part of the body. And he calls it a grotesque anomaly if you think you can be part of the head without being part of the body. And I would repeat this line. I would talk about the church being the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and get the, the, the response, standard response was, oh, well, vicar, uh, I have my Bible, I have Jesus, and um, some of them even said I don't really need the church. And this was the, the starting point for me of thinking, uh, and obviously, if you don't need the church, you don't need the sacraments. Yeah. And so what role did the sacraments play in the life of the Christian? Uh, this, uh, the, the, this kind of lone ranger Christianity became, became not just an aberration. I saw it becoming quite central to the lives, in the lives of many evangelical Christians. Uh, uh, so that was one aspect of, of uh, the, the, uh, that, that, that got me questioning. The other aspect was uh, I have a PhD in biblical studies from the University of Cambridge. Now, this is not, uh, you know, this was just part of my training and profession. And, uh, and therefore, when I preached a sermon, I would engage in serious exegesis look at the Hebrew, the Greek, the Latin, look at what the church fathers were saying, try and understand scripture in the light of tradition, simply because I thought, he, I mean, who am I? You know, puny little arrogant uh, clergyman sitting in the 21st century and looking at my English Bible, uh, leather bound, at, and thinking that, oh, I can interpret it on my own. Uh, not standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. And I would visit people and, or I would preach my sermon and then people would say, well, you know, I, I don't agree with this and I don't agree with that. And this is my interpretation. And in some cases, it was quite serious because a, a couple, uh, the husband was dying and the wife repeatedly quoted Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, completely out of context. It made no difference the amount of uh, time and 
energy I invested into helping understand good interpretation, what the church taught about this, uh, and the poor chap eventually died. And what she, she think it meant? Uh, that he's going to be healed. Oh, I see. So yes. that she thought that Jesus would, would, would cure him of his... Precisely. And even after he died, and you know, it was very disturbing because they had a 13-year-old daughter who was brainwashed into biblical literalism and believed exactly the same thing. And the cognitive dissonance at the end of the day when he died was, was tragic to behold. Uh, so, so these were some of the experiences. But on, on the positive side, uh, when I preached and did serious exegesis before preaching, I began to discover that, uh, boy, you know, uh, when you read John chapter 6, for example, Jesus talking about, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot have life within you. It, it did not matter which commentator I went to. I mean, I'm talking about the, you know, the top commentators or, or which Greek variant of reading I looked at. Uh, the conclusion hit me in the face. Jesus was not speaking metaphorically. He was talking about us literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And uh, transubstantiation was a doctrine that only the Roman Catholic Church believed in and taught and practiced. Mm. And, and so I began an exploration of the church fathers and I, it was predicated upon this realization that the canonization of Holy Scripture particularly the New Testament, took place much later in the late third century. So for the first 300 years, Christians did not have a leather-bound, you know, uh, King James Version uh, <laughs> copy of the Bible that they brought to church every Sunday and read <laughs> on their beds every night with their table lamp. <laughs> what were they doing, you know? How were bishops and priests teaching during the first 300 years. And then I began to see the absolutely indispensable nature of church tradition, the fathers, uh, the role of the church, and then began to obviously discover things like, you know, uh, uh, Ignatius of Antioch teaching about episcopacy very early, the apostolic tradition, the, the sacraments, uh, the fact that justification by faith was an, or by faith alone was an innovation. I'm not using the word heresy. I'm being much more polite here. I'm using Alistair McGrath, the famous Oxford uh, theologian, Alistair McGrath, who's a great evangelical theologian. He himself admits in his magisterial work on justification. Uh, that justification by faith alone was never taught in the church for 1500 years. And then I discovered in the process of preaching a series of sermons on the Eucharist that the, uh, that, that the real presence, the doctrine of the real presence, was always taught for the first 1500 years in the church. I mean, with, with a couple of, you know, blips eight and ninth century or the, or the or the 11th century, Brad Bertus and Brad Pramanus, the debate between them. Uh, so, so I kept thinking to myself, well, I believe, you know, uh, almost everything the Catholic Church teaches, I believe everything that sense. 
uh, what am I doing as an Anglican priest? And uh, I, I needed something to actually push me in. And it happened when I discovered Church Militant. I saw that for the first time in my life that there were Catholics who actually believed what the church teaches, because for a very long time, I had been exposed to the, your, your kind of cafeteria Catholic, your, uh, uh, your liberal Catholic priests, my colleagues in, in university, chaplaincy, for example, who, who did, you know, clearly rejected much of the teaching of the church. And I thought to myself, you know, what's the point in becoming Catholic if, if, if this is the case? But for the first time, I saw Catholics who really believed what the church had taught, held on to scripture and tradition, lived lives of holiness. And then, uh, you know, wonderfully, uh, I experienced the Latin Mass for the first time in my life when I went to Detroit. I had watched the Latin Mass on YouTube. I had uh, uh, in, in the cathedral and the Royal, the Royal Naval Chapel where I was vicar, we did settings of the the mass, uh, the Kyrie, the Agnus Dei, the Gloria in Latin, and used Palestrina and Mozart and Bach and all these great composers. But for the first time in my life, I actually saw the Latin mass in its fullness and right. all its splendor. And uh, that, that, was that? I think, was the final straw pushing me to. Where, 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 where did you, um, where, where, where was that? It was in Detroit, actually in an inner city part of Detroit. Um, and it, it was just amazing because uh, the ethnic spread was diverse. Uh, lots and lots and lots of children and they were impeccably behaved. <laughs> 30 of them up on the altar, that the singing was sublime. I think there were choirs of angels there. Uh, there was tremendous reverence, tremendous reverence. You could hear a pain drop. People came for mass about half an hour before mass. Uh, there was no chit-chat. People came clearly to meet God. Uh, men, young men, came in uh, and queued up for confession, which I had not seen before. Yeah, and uh, it was great community. But 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 you know, people really believed, and the very fact that they took communion on the tongue, they knelt, women covered their heads with veils. It, it, it was it was something out of this world. It was a glimpse of glory. How oh, interesting! I see. I I think. Um... Is this, is this, I was just wondering, I, the, 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 the notion of a traditional Catholic church in, in Detroit, it, it, it kind of reminds me of a news story. And I, I think this is right. Was this the one that burned down and had to be rebuilt? I don't think so. I think this is St. Joseph the Worker. In, Institute of Christ the King. Yes. Um, they're, they're, they're maybe you're there. right. Maybe you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not too. I'll check on that. But um, anyway, it, it, it's, 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 um, well, what, 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 what they have in America can be terribly impressive and much more so than here in England. Um, and um, I, I, I'm, I'm, well, it makes me very happy to think that they, you know, that they, they, they have this thing. And it, it's just a bit small scale here. Um, I think what well, you said a number of things which I think are, are important and uh, maybe worth some of them worth dwelling on. 
I, one thing I think maybe surprised some people, perhaps not the typical reader or listener of this, um, but others who, who, who aren't familiar with the traditional movement, is you mentioned the diversity of the congregation. And that's something which has always struck. In fact, the, from the first time I walked in to um, uh, you know, a regular mass in the traditional form um, myself 20 years ago, I, um, I became aware that this was a range of people. I'm not claiming that it was kind of a particular, I mean, it was not a very big congregation, but what struck me was socially that in a lot of English parishes, um, Catholic parishes, you have um, different masses and indeed, you know, nearby parishes, and they tend to attract different slices of the kind of socio-economic mm. pie. I mean, even if there isn't a kind of ethnic diversity to be had mm. in the area, nevertheless, very, very different types of people end up going, you know, the middle-class people and the people who like this kind of music, the people like that kind of, and it's, it's, it's very sad actually, because I feel that, um, well, I can only talk about England, but I think in England, we need each other. I think that people, Catholics are different kinds of backgrounds. They need each other. And I, I'm, I mean, this isn't aimed at you know, ethnic chaplaincies or anything like student chaplaincies, anything like, which couldn't make sense on their own terms. An ordinary parish where you have, you know, three different masses and all the, all the families go to one, you know, and all the kind of educated people go to another. And there's a sort of third one. I think that's that's a terrible situation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's not healthy at all. Um, um, and um, yeah, so I finally found myself in this place where, yeah, it was a real mix. It was a real mix, and um, it was it was very interesting. Um, and where there is, you know, in big cities where there is a, a, a you know diverse population, then you 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 get you get a diversity of of, of people coming along um, because of the appeal of um, well, the way I would express it was the appeal of traditional spirituality. Well, I, I, if, if you you know about this as well as I do, uh, Santa, uh, Santissima Trinita, yes, uh, the leading Latin Mass parish in Rome, uh, we've you know been there on a number of Sundays for months actually, and we noticed. Uh, an ethnic diversity there. We notice people from an Indian background, from African backgrounds, from Chinese backgrounds, uh, and they're all all together at at mass. Yeah. So I, I think there is something there. Yes, that's right. It, it, it's something which is noticed again and again in, in the the survey which I was involved in doing on behalf of the Budapest International. Um, in Italy um, and indeed in, in many other countries, they noted, um, you know, if it was a city, uh, a diverse city, they got a diverse congregation. How interesting! Yeah, and it's 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 yeah. Well, one thing I suppose is is that it's it's people who don't have, you know, the the local dominant vernacular as their native language. It's not such an you know. Well, there's no point to the vernacular liturgy. You know, they're not, it's not, they're not at home there. You know, it's not, maybe it's not a problem, but they're not at home there. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of, you know, mainstream Catholics don't really grasp what it's like to be living in a country that's not your own. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
not 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 as a kind of tourist or a kind of honor visitor, but of something you know who's just sweeping the streets or you know cleaning people's apartments. Um, and um, you don't necessarily want to worship in in you know Italian or or, or, or something. And I had a, a particularly amusing um, account of this from uh, a correspondent in Luxembourg. He says Luxembourg is is got all kinds of immigrants there, um, and and they all go to their own masses. Well, Luxembourg, of course, is a is a very well resourced yeah. church. So you know they've got themselves organised, and there's a mass in Polish, and there's a mass in Portuguese, and there's a mass in Luxembourgish. And you just you just go to any of these masses, and you will only find people who speak those languages as natives. Yes, um, well, and it's interesting you mentioned this because I did a story on a Latin mass church in Germany mm. last year. And I was fascinated, A, by the fact that it was an inner city parish. Uh, B, the priests there were intentionally working to evangelize and convert the Muslim population. The area was predominantly Muslim. Right. And uh, C, uh, the, the congregation itself was diverse ethnically. So there is, there is, uh, <laughs> this is, I didn't think we'd delve into this area, but. It's fascinating. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I, I, I say this about the Catholic Church because I, I, I know, and I know every, I, I, when I come in contact with, with, with Anglican clergy, particularly, I mean, one of the things that they like to say about themselves, oh, the Anglican Church is the church of England. We serve everyone. So, what do you say? I mean, this is the great claim. Um, is it? I mean, how does it work in the Anglican Church? Well, uh, gosh, I, I don't think the Anglican Church is... Uh, okay, uh, the big question I always ask myself as an Anglican priest is, where is the working class? Mm. And why are Anglican clergy, who are almost uniformly white, middle class, uh, public school, you know, uh, Oxbridge, I'm, I'm making a sweeping statement here, and there are many exceptions to that rule, but uh, I, I noticed priests lived in a kind of, uh, you know, Barchester Towers, uh, you know, what's, the, what's that called? Gas and gators, that kind of world. And they were totally oblivious. I, I'll give you a very good example. I, I did a lot of preaching in different churches in London when I was chaplain to the University of Greenwich and did not have the uh, chaplaincy of the Royal Naval Chapel, so that, that kept me free. And then I taught at the London School of Theology, so again, that gave me an opportunity to go around and see different churches. And the first point of conversation was always with the vicar. Uh, he said, uh, uh, he would talk about the history of the church and about the parish boundaries, geographical boundaries. And I, I thought, found that very odd. <laughs> and uh, I would then ask him, how many people come on a Sunday morning? And quite often the answer was particularly in central London, 10 people, 20 <laughs> people. Right. Yeah. Have, have you made any efforts to reach out and evangelize? And... Uh, I, you know, I almost got a kind of blank, dead fish 
cod-like look on his face. Just yeah. didn't know what I was talking about. But the, the working classes are totally cut off to from the Church of England, except when there's a funeral or baptism. And even then the vicars are extremely patronizing, think they have to dumb down everything because the poor working classes are so stupid in their opinion. Uh, politically, uh, the, the, the clergy lean so far left that the old uh, dictum of the Church of England being the Tory party at prayer is so false. It's the Church of England is not even the Labour Party at prayer. It's the it's the, the it's the uh, Liberal Democrats. And, <laughs> you know, now it's probably Stonewall and the you know Black Lives Matter at prayer. Uh, so, so this is the kind of, um, you know, the Church of England is not the Church of the People. It's a church that likes to pride itself on being part of the establishment. And even those churches that are full and exploding, St. Helens, Bishop's Gate, for example, uh, All Souls, Langham Place, the evangelical strongholds, the flagship churches, my goodness, it's almost uniformly middle and upper middle class. A friend of mine, a parishioner of mine actually, would go to the church in Wimbledon, the proprietary chapel, and he always had a joke. He said, uh, they never asked you which university you went to. They asked you which college you went to, because it was presumed that you would have studied either at Oxford or Cambridge. And he would jokingly say, I, I didn't fit in very well because I was neither Oxford nor Cambridge. I was Uxbridge. So, but but that, that is just anecdotal evidence to you know demonstrate how far removed uh, the Church of England is from the. I, I mean, I used to go with a uh, with uh, an, an Indonesian Lutheran when we were in Cambridge once in a while to Our Lady and the English Martyrs in Cambridge, the Catholic parish there. Brilliant. And uh, the first thing he would say the moment we enter, wow, the diversity is wonderful. Because there was not only an ethnic diversity, there was glories, and you'd not find that in Anglican churches in Cambridge, but there was also class diversity. Because people of different classes yeah. economic classes in Cambridge all came together and uh, I, but as an aside this Indonesian friend also thought of becoming a Catholic and he would bump into bishops, Catholic bishops who say oh Anwar you shouldn't become Catholic you're wonderful as a Lutheran and you must stay and be a witness as a Lutheran so <laughs> tragic yeah. yes yeah yeah well and I know, I and mean, within Anglicanism, one you know, one, one attempt to to to, to address this uh, has been by evangelicals, um, with their you know more outward going kind of style. Um, and another contrasting attempt has been by the high Anglicans, I mean, historically, yes. Yes. Um, planting churches in slums um, and you know, doing all that sort of thing. Um, before, just before, uh, well, just before the how Anglican. Ordinary eight thing um, took off mm -hmm. after Anglican and Chaitabas had been published. I, I attended an interesting talk by um, um, well, the, the then flying bishop who was about to become a Catholic. Um, 
And, um, and he said, basically, the, the high Anglican experiment had, had been a failure. Yeah. He said that they, they, they planted churches in the inner cities, yeah. thinking that the reason that people weren't going to church because there weren't churches for them. Well, I mean, that, obviously, that was a bit of a problem, the Anglican church not keeping up with the development oh. of slum areas. And things. Um, but he said it didn't, it didn't really work. Um, and and the, you know the, the the clergy went out there to serve these people. Of course, there was no money, you know, so they lived these lives of of, of uh, sacrificial, you know, hmm. uh, of poverty. Um, but um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a struggle. This big attempt. I I, I don't know, and I, I I would like to to, to put some a, a pinch of salt in, in that to some extent. I think that one thing that it's very easy to forget. Um, at the at the you know the the, the, the far end of the twentieth century is the progress that was made by all denominations in the course of the nineteenth century. The, mm. the the real low point of Christianity in England was the eighteenth century, uh, where no one really believed in anything, and the Anglicans at least didn't seem to care very much about that. Um, and um, there wasn't a single cathedral built in the 17th or 18th century, which is quite amazing. Um, but in the 19th century, the number, you know, the proportions of people into church, the proportions of weddings in churches, all that, I mean, the, the numbers are very positive over the course of 100 years. Um, so, you know, I mean, good work, good work was, was being done, um, not just by the, the Catholics, it must be said. Um, but, um, um, well, how did you end up in the Isle of Man? I felt called to serve God there, and I was told by the Archbishop of Canterbury and many others, don't go there, you're committing ecclesiastical suicide. <laughs> but there was no, and because it's so cut off from mainland England, uh, people on the island, friends of mine, told me that, that, that there was no serious biblical teaching and preaching, you know, since. John Wesley went there and started Methodism. And uh, the churches were in, uh, in really in need of a theological and biblical input. So that is what drew me there. It, I also went uh, thinking that uh, I was attracted by the, this idea of uh, you know, the country parson and uh, giving up the bright lights of Liverpool Cathedral where I served as canon theologian, the largest Anglican cathedral in the world. And I went, on the, went to the Isle of Man to a church the size of a broom cupboard. <laughs> uh, but I thought to myself, it's such a small island, it has its own parliament. If we can stir up a Christian revival like the Hebrides uh, revival, right. we might be able to influence parliament and then uh, influenced the, the, the nations around England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Uh, so it was kind of laboratory. Yes. And uh, we, we, we felt really called to go there. Interesting. So, I mean, they have the, is, is it, it has its own bishop, doesn't it? Um, it has its own bishop, yes. In, in, in Anglican, and indeed, historically. Um, historically, it would have been a Catholic bishop and yeah, I, in, in the Catholic Church, it's just part of the Diocese of, of Liverpool. Liverpool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forgotten about. <clears throat> um, and how long were you? How long were you there? Seven years. 
Uh, we left the Church of England and the, I, I won't go into this, but I had a big bust up with the bishop and uh, I was becoming more and more unhappy about the church's swing towards uh, openly promoting, uh, you know, the LGBTI agenda. I was also increasingly concerned about women's ordination, particularly after women were ordained to the Episcopate. Mm -hmm. I was always concerned about uh, women's ordination in terms of the priesthood, but I never really had the tools to fully explore why this was problematic. And uh, we left the Church of England and we became part of an independent Anglican uh, network under Bishop Gavin Ashenden, who actually Gavin and I made the journey to Rome together. Right. We right. spent 10 days at a retreat, a pilgrimage in Athens, and we prayed and we, you know, talked about uh, where we were going, what we believed. And uh, we, we realized there was no alternative but to go to Rome. Mm -hmm. So, um, he was a huge influence on my journey because, for example, he told me, shared with me his personal testimony of how he was compelled to pray the rosary. And uh, as an Anglican priest 10 years ago, right. to, to fight against, uh, you know, diabolical attacks against him. And... Uh, he, you know, talked about how he talked about Eucharistic miracles. He talked about Our Lady's apparitions at Fatima and other places. And so uh, the, the the evidence was just overwhelming. Funny enough, I, I not long ago I, I actually heard him talking about about the Rosary um, and and the, the experience that you mentioned, and it was on a blog podcast with um i think um the holy smoke podcast of Daniel Thompson. um and it was um really i mean quite something <laughs> i do recommend that yeah um that um um you know, people hunt, hunt, hunt that down um and it's it's it is remarkable the way that god um reveals himself mm. to people um and you know very often in, in quite ordinary ways, but every now and then in, in extraordinary ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's not a kind of flighty kind of <laughs> silly kind of, you know, pious fool, Gavin yeah. Ashton. He's, he's a very serious yeah. character. And, um, and a very astute thinker and philosopher. Yeah. And I mean, he really gave me the tools to understand feminism and the, Trojan horse that feminism was in terms of women's ordination first to the deacon, a diaconate, then to the priesthood, then to the episcopacy, and how I was wrong to regard even the first step of that as, as something correct. Uh, so he gave me the philosophical and hermeneutical tools to understand the, uh, you know, the, the very, I mean, the master's nature of the whole project. Yes, <laughs> to put it crudely, uh, to put it in its in real terms, and I was thinking about my goodness, I didn't know this, you know. 
Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to him. And, and once the, those eyes were opened, or my eyes were opened along those lines, a lot of other things fell into place as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you said this this period of your life. I mean, you, you said he was a. Um, you, you, you'd left the Anglican Church. We planted an independent Anglican church. So he was, again, now just for the benefit of listeners, I mean, this is something, perhaps a phenomenon which, which many of them may, may mm. not really understand, but it's, it's, I mean, this is actually a relatively, I mean, surprisingly um, common thing um, with, with, given the nature of, of, of Protestant ecclesiology, it's not so surprising to find um, all sorts of things springing up outside the, 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 the you know, the, the formal boundaries of uh, this or that denomination because anyone can set up anything yes um, so um, there are quite a few um, and some of them are international some of them have you know quite quite elaborate systems of, of churches and bishops and things um, and and, and this, by the way is that it now a very important phenomenon in Anglicanism global Anglicanism because the mother church, the because Lambeth has gone down the toilet in terms of rejecting, you know, biblical teaching and tradition on uh, homosexuality, gay marriage, etc. It started, of course, in the Episcopal Church in the United States, uh, and there large parishes left, and they either merged together in Anglo-Catholic dioceses or more evangelical dioceses. And then the Anglo-Catholics and the evangelicals came together to form what we know now as the Anglican Church in North America. Right. And similar movements are taking place in England. I mean, a lot of clergy are, the evangelical clergy are thinking to themselves, uh, you know, what do we do? We cannot anymore submit to a regime that is pushing down uh, you know, the, the liberal agenda, so making it official. Yeah. It wasn't an official all this while. And so they are forming, I think it's now called the Anglican Mission in England, which is linked to uh, the Anglican Church in North America. They're forming these bodies right. and some hope that the Church of England would soon, you know, would slowly expire and these groups will proliferate. I personally do not have much hope in the, because as you said, you know, it's sectarian, it's almost schismatic. If I, I no, I don't want to use the word schismatic, but I, I uh, because the church of England itself is, is schismatic in that sense. Um, they are not grounded in solid ecclesiology. That's the whole problem at the end of the day. Yeah. Evangelicalism does not have ecclesiology. Or it has a very flawed ecclesiology. Yes, yes. Well, um, I mean, some some listeners may may recall the case of the traditional Anglican communion, and for a brief moment, mm. it looked like that they might come across as a body to the the Catholic Church. And there was a kind of wonderful moment when they the bishops of this 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 um, ecclesial body, what should we call it? Um, they all signed a copy of the of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Do you remember that? Yeah, no, I don't. Okay. Yeah, it was Australia, I think. Um, and um, they kind of had, they had a group, they had a synod of some kind, and they, they they did this, and it was their intention to become Catholics. And in the end, some of them did, and some of them didn't. 
<clears throat> and, and part of the problem was 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 them, and, and part of the problem was was the the um, well, from their point of view, was was the Catholic Church because it's difficult for the Catholic Church to receive into its bosom as a body a group which it does not recognize as a even a a schismatic yes uh, yeah. group so um if, if if the if the russian orthodox suddenly woke up one morning and wanted to become go into communion with the with the pope the pope would just say fine right you're now in communion um you just have your churches and your bishops and everything else carry on as normal um <laughs> but it's so much more complicated with with um you know with with, with the anglicans um, and it did. I, I remember. I remember Monsignor uh, Newton saying, um, describing the, the talk that I was mentioning earlier. He said, "He said, well, we had to tell our people that we can all be on a bus together um, to go to the Catholic Church, but we have to climb on one by one. <laughs> we climb on the bus one by one. <laughs> um, so each one of these, you know, the, the, the congregations which came across, each one had to be individually received." And and that's one reason why it's it just it didn't happen in the in the in the spectacular way that some people would take, um, which is which is a bit sad. But it's also you know it's just inevitable. And I'm I'm you know the the Pope and the bishops they made quite big concessions, which is which is good. But I'm glad they didn't make concessions, which would have been kind of you know silly um, to try and fudge that over. Anyway, we can't, we can't do it. And one of the, one of the, despite all the problems with the Catholic church of which I'm painfully aware, it's interesting that those sorts of issues, um, they, they, um, thanks, I suppose, to the role of the congregation of the doctrine of faith in these, in these processes, they, yeah. they tend to hold the line. So well, you've got to, you've got to go through the proper procedures, but, um, nevertheless, that's, that's, that's very, um, that's very interesting. I mean, did you, when you and Gavin became Catholics, I mean, did you leave behind this 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 thing that you founded, or or, or does it just dissolve? Yes, in fact, I was. I, I I had begun to teach what I would call Catholic doctrine from the pulpit in the last three or four months of. I mean, uh, the, a number of things like the real presence, etc. I I had begun to teach much before that. But I was getting more and more explicit in teaching about the primacy of Peter, for example, in my exegesis of Matthew chapter 16. Mm. Um, and uh, they knew that I was heading in that direction. And yeah. they didn't know it would be so sudden, of course, and neither did I. But, uh, you know, when God calls you, you just have to say yes. And so the, the, the congregation that we planted is, and they're very grateful that they're not part of the Church of England. Uh, <laughs> they have now, yeah, they have now uh, been accepted by the Free Church of England, which is, uh, which is a 150-year-old denomination that broke away from the Church of England. At, during the time of the Oxford movement, uh, because the Church of England was getting too Catholic in its uh, the Tractarian movement, right? They wanted to be much more Protestant. Uh, that they, of course, have their own problems with the current uh, Primus head bishop, uh, who in, himself is quite Catholic, 
believes in the apostolic succession, he's actually been uh, legitimately ordained by, uh, I think, an orthodox bishop in the apostolic succession. And uh, uh, he, he, uh, he would like to see the church become more Catholic in that sense. But he's facing quite a bit of resistance because the uh, clergy are strongly Protestant. And written into their uh, articles of faith is a very strong form of Calvin Calvinism. Right, right. So it's, it's, yeah. This is the kind of, uh, you know, this is the problem with Anglicanism. It's neither fish nor fowl, and it's, yeah. you know, it, and with Cranmer and the prayer book itself, you have that problem. Uh, the, 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 the fudge that you can believe you know, in two opposite things and yet be part of the same church. Yes, yes, indeed. I, I, it, it's, it's, and there's a wonderful um, literature of, of um, conversion stories um, from Anglicanism to Catholicism. Um, Ronald Knox and, and that sort of era um and they, they often talk about the you know the 39 articles and 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 the kind of the, the contortions they, they they went through um and some of these contortions are are actually baked into the um you know the the, the process of, of uh, being prepared for anglican ministry as far as i can make out that you know you kind of at least in those days, you, you, you actually had to put your, your hand up and say you believed in the 39 articles. Um, but then there are kind of ways of believing in them, um, which we, and the whole books have been written about how you could actually be, you know, have a Catholic theology and yet accept this in some sort of contorted sense. I mean, um, John Henry Newman did that towards yes. the end of his ministry in the Anglican Church. He tried to interpret the, the 39 articles in a manner that was Catholic. And I never understood, for example, you know, it's so clear one of the articles says transubstantial is repugnant yes. to the teaching of scripture. And you, you just cannot interpret that in a manner that's innocent. Yes. But, <laughs> well, um, you'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> I don't know how, how it, it happens. But I, and I do, I do remember, one of them, I think it's, it's um, uh, Monsignor Benson. He said, having become a Catholic, he, he looks back at the Church of England and can't understand why he was there for so long. And he says it's like in a, a, a folk tale where someone is in, entertained by the fairies in a kind of magnificent palace, castle. And you leave and you turn around, look back at it, and all you can see is a grass-covered mound. <laughs> it's, it's like when you're in it, it kind of, you know, it all makes sense. When you're outside it, it, it looks completely different. And I think, and one of the things I always try to say on these, in these sorts of conversations in, in, in public is, is to, to Catholic listeners, we must be patient with the people who are in that situation. And it's difficult to imagine the intellectual, the cognitive situation of someone who is an Anglican, um, you know, who's been an Anglican for a long time, maybe was born into the church, or maybe, you know, has a complicated journey already. Um, and it's, it's just, things just aren't clear in the way that they become clear if you accept certain things. 
So it is a kind of there's a once you cross the bridge, then suddenly the landscape looks different. Yeah, and of course, part of the problem is many Catholic priests and Catholic parishes themselves <laughs> act as a stumbling block. I mean, yes. for example, evangelicals. Uh, one of the reasons evangelicals continue to stay within the Catholic Church, and this was uh, the Anglican Church, this was my reason as well, one of my reasons. Uh, this is the best boat to fish from. So when people want to get married, they want to get baptized, they right. want to be confirmed, uh, I'm here to preach the gospel to them. Uh, they, they, they would never otherwise darken the doors of a church. And I must say, I had a remarkably successful ministry at the Royal Naval Chapel, uh, simply marrying people because they thought it was a wonderful building. And I would say to myself, you know, you, you've got to attend church for six months and, you know, learn about the faiths and uh, do a marriage preparation course. And many of them came to faith in Christ as a result of that ministry. Right. But then I go to, you know, many Catholic parishes and I talk about evangelism. And again, the Catholic priest couldn't care less because he believes that all faiths are equally valid, even though that is against fundamental Catholic doctrine. Yeah. So, so, so the 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 problem with Anglicans committed Anglican vicars, clergymen look at the Catholic Church and say, "You guys aren't doing evangelism. You're doing in you're, you're doing interfaith dialogue." Yeah. I don't want to be part of that scene. You've compromised on the faith, and that is a terrible stumbling block for many people who would otherwise happily leave the Church of England and come home to Rome. Yes, and it's not the clergy, you know, it's not yeah. the clergy sex scandals because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, there are sex, horrible sex scandals in every single denomination. Mm. But it's the it's the kind of uh, it's, it's the abandoning of the faith once handed down to the saints. Yeah. That people in different churches, not just Anglicans, but Methodists and others, look at it and say, I, I can't be part of that church, which has abandoned the great commission of Christ. Yes. Well, indeed. I mean, that, that's, that's it's understandable. And it's, it's interesting to, to turn that around and look at it from inside the Catholic Church. Here, here I am, a member of a tiny um, and, and somewhat beleaguered minority of Catholics. Mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of this. We all are. But we don't feel what the outsiders feel about it because we are testing everything as Catholics. We're used to testing everything in an institutional and traditional way, which, by which I mean that we say, well, look, this is what the church has always taught, and therefore this is what the church teaches now. Mm. And it doesn't matter what the priest down the road, he might be, you know, might be saying all sorts of crazy things. And we've seen this before, you know, it happened in the 16th century. Mm. It's you know it's happened, happened in various places and times and maybe it's worse now but it's not it's not a kind of unique problem. Um, maybe the bishop is 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 you know some bishops became Protestants of course famous in the 16th century, um, and but that doesn't change the teaching of the church. So the church is full of sinners, not just full of sinners, but it's also it's it's kind of totally kind of you know institutionally compromised, um, and yet we can say well. 
the church, Catholic Church has always taught X, Y, and Z, and out comes this yeah. stuff, you know, from and the council. That, that is why I think when, yeah, but the, the, that is why when people like me were exposed to Catholics like you, Catholics like church militant, and the Latin mass, mm. we said to ourselves, yes, we know that the Catholic Church has taught the perennial truth. And here are people who actually live that truth, believe that truth, and I want to be part of that. Yeah. Um, so that that makes all the difference. And, and, you know, when I go and attend a Latin Mass, I know the priest is not going to spout liberalism from the pulpit. Yeah. So that's a huge arc of safety for me. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. that he's not going to fiddle around with the liturgy and, you know, introduce singing and dancing girls in the sanctuary. He believes in the real presence. Yes. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Uh, we so it, 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 I, 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 that's why I think the Latin Mass can become a huge, and is already in many places, a huge beacon and vehicle of evangelism, evangelization, yeah. and, and also of resistance to the uh, onslaught of liberalism. Yes, 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 it's, 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 it's true. Um, it's true. And I think that it's, it's well, uh, I feel particularly sorry for, for the people I, I call conservative Catholics, as opposed to traditional ones who, you know, who, you know, who, who feel obliged to go along to their geographical parish and mm. get some of this priest, some of that priest, some of this abuse and that abuse and this preaching and that preaching. And, and they, you know, they complain about it. They don't feel they can kind of go anywhere else. Um, and it's, it's, well, it's, it's an eternity of suffering for them yeah. throughout their lives. And how, are their children going to maintain the faith in that environment? Right. You know, they're, they're being taught yeah. one thing by their parents and they've experienced something quite different at church. I mean, there might be some situation where you just can't escape from that, but it, it, it's if, if, if we're going to have any hope um, in this life to, to carry on, we've got to have, uh, to use a kind of Protestant expression, a worship community. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I, or to use a more Catholic expression, the church has got to be incarnated. And, and you know, that means, a, a, you know, the, the, the liturgy, it means a priest, it means, you know, the, the, the sacraments. Mm. Um, the Catholic religion is not supposed to be something which, which you know, you just get out of books. Um. And it's it's a you know, it's a catastrophe if, if that if that is happening. <clears throat> so we've talked about your you know your 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 conversion um, and some of the contrasts with the between the Catholic Church and the, and the, and the Church of England. Um, you weren't. Before you, but just to kind of reiterate, is that you, before you became a Catholic, you weren't a what we call high Anglican. Um, and I think it's. Yes, it's so no, I, I denied in the glories of high Anglicanism. So I believed in the real presence. I followed and celebrated the traditional liturgy. Right. Um, in fact, it was more traditional than the Catholic Church down the road. <laughs> uh, the Catholic cathedral down the road actually and uh, but I combined that with a love for scripture 
with biblical preaching and with a passion for evangelism, mm. because I've always thought, thought to myself, the word and the sacrament go together. Uh, you know, why, why do we have to, this is the problem, in high Anglicanism, you have great liturgy, but pathetic preaching. With evangelicals, you have great preaching and almost no liturgy or some form of, you know, yes. him sandwich. Um, and I thought to myself, what, what, you know, what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. <laughs> we need the word and the sacrament. Yes. And, uh, and we go to a Byzantine parish in Rome. And it's so beautiful because it's so traditional and it's, it's in Greek and uh, the week which I enjoy because I studied New Testament Greek. And you have these two entrances, the entrance, you know, the little entrance of the, of the Holy Scripture, the first entrance, I think it's called the little entrance, and then the great entrance of our Lord in the Holy Sacrament, the bread and wine, that becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Right. Uh, so, uh, and the preach, priest preaches a great sermon. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> the liturgy celebrated in a manner that's so wonderfully reverential. But, but there is no divorce like, you know, high Anglican and evangelicalism is brought together. So, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I would say I was both. I was high right, right. and, and evangelical to answer your question. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 um, that, that kind of contrast is, is um, as you say, it's a kind of, it's a sort of um, strange feature of, of, of the Anglican Church. It's something which, which, which in the Catholic Church, we're not, we don't have anything quite like that. In as much as, I mean, in Anglicanism, you can you you can go off to a particular kind of seminary, and yeah. and get a particular kind of formation, right. and, and and then there are you know whole institutions which which are kind of dedicated to one stream um, or another, um, and in in a way that's just well it, it just doesn't work institutionally in in, in the Catholic Church um, like that at all. Although we do have schools of thought, I mean, heaven help us, <laughs> we certainly do. <laughs> Um, but um, we can probably we can probably wrap this up in a minute now um, because we, we, we've been talking for quite a long time, um, and I, I'm hugely grateful to you. Would you like to say something about your current work before we before we part? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm truly blessed to be part of Church Militants because uh, we pray for two hours every day, and that's so central. We pray the Rosary. We pray the daily office in the morning and the evening office. We say the Angelus and the uh, uh, Sister Faustina's, St. Faustina's, uh, uh, what's the, oh, Chaplet of Divine Mercy. Uh, and uh, that is an anchor for the whole day. I, I'm Rome correspondent and I cover the Vatican and quite a bit of Europe, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a very rewarding vocation. And before I became a 
priest and taught scripture. In the Church of England, I was a journalist. Then my first career was in journalism. And so it looks like the Lord has brought me full circle back into journalism, but for his glory and in a, in a consecrated manner, uh, serving him in an apostolate that is totally dedicated to, primarily, by the way, our mission is saving souls. I keep telling people this. It's not exposing the rot. It's saving souls. Right. Uh, and Michael Voice, who started this ministry, realized that when he went around uh, preaching the gospel and saving souls, people would be scandalized by some of the problems. And so we had to equally, not equally, but to some extent, fight uh, the corruption within. And so it, it, it's, it's I, I, I don't say it gives me great joy to expose some of the uh, not so nice things that are happening, but it's, it's important to do it. And I know that the Lord has called us to do it. We love living in Rome and we love Italy. And we love the fact that we can, you know, <laughs> be part of that great communion of saints and St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis of and Padre Pio. And uh, we, we just, you know, there are so many saints and so many miracles that happened in this wonderful country. And we pray daily for Italy. And I would ask your listeners, I mean, I know most of them will be based in England, uh, but... To, to, to remember Italy in your prayers, remember the Vatican in your prayers, and pray that this country might be, you know, once again, the great citadel of Christendom and Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and I, I, would, I would add my own um, um, encouragement to, to that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jules. It's been a great pleasure, as always, to, to talk to you. And, and thank you for, what, for the work you do uh, with the Latin Mass Society, and you are a great inspiration. And I must say, I am extremely grateful for the work of your apostolate, because I wouldn't be where I am if not for people like you and for the work of the Latin Mass Society. So thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Latin Mass Society. We hope you enjoyed it and would appreciate your rating the podcast on the platform you are using. You'll find some more information and links relating to the talk in the show notes, which you can see on a page dedicated to the IOTA Una podcast series on our website. The Latin Mass Society promotes the celebration of the ancient Latin liturgy of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, organising masses and training events and defending and explaining the liturgical tradition in the context of the Catholic liturgy and thought. If you would like to find out more, do visit our website and consider joining us or giving us a donation. You'll find a big red donate button in the top right hand corner. Thank you.